You are listening to a podcast from Classic City Church. We're glad you've joined us. Our services are held at 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 595 Prince Avenue in the Piedmont Sanctuary. For more information, please visit www.classiccity.org. This is a sermon from Pastor Lee Mason. Let me tell you what we've been doing uh, this fall in our our. our fall series, at least the first one we're starting out with, is we're doing a series called Because He Has, I Am. And what we're looking at is because he has gone to the cross, I am, and we're filling in what the Bible says and teaches uh, the salvation we experience through his death on the cross is like. And the Bible uses six words uh, to describe it. Now, these six words meant something very clear and very profound to the original audience who read it. And I want us to look at what these six words mean, what they meant to them, and what they mean for us today as we as Christians want to follow the Lord and pursue His will for our life and experience the salvation Jesus won for us with His death to a more fuller and a more powerful extent. Now, the first one we looked at was the word atonement. He brought about atonement. Our sins are atoned for. And that word atonement means to cover over. It means to remove from one's sight. And what that meant in the Old Testament, there was a holiday, a, a, a day called Yom Kippur, and it meant the Day of Atonement. And during that day, there were many ceremonies a priest would perform. And in doing so, he would take the sins of the community out of God's sight. They understood that with this ceremony, their sins were being atoned for. They were being removed from God's sight. And when it was described, here's what this removing from God's sight, this atonement was like. It'd be like if we had a board up here, and I wrote every one of your sins on them. Every sin you ever committed was written on this board. And I took a blanket and covered the board. I would remove, in a sense, your sin from sight. But what we understand is through what Jesus did on the cross, he didn't just put a blanket over our past. The Bible says he remitted them. He removed them. He wiped them out. He erased our sins. It'd be like me taking an eraser and just wiping that cleaning it entirely off that board, and it would be as though they never existed. And this is what it means to have your sins atoned for. Because he has, my sins have been removed from his sight. And the reason this is so powerful is one of the things we face and we struggle with as human beings, because we're sinful, because we're sinners, is shame. And the goal of that was to remove shame from our soul, remove a sense of shame and inferiority before God. Uh, and, and that's what he did. Because he has, my sins are atoned for. Last week, we looked at a word called redemption. And redemption has a lot of meanings in our culture, but what it meant from the, uh, in the Old Testament was the idea of restoring lost property, property that had been lost due to misfortune or mismanagement or whatever, there was a, a, a family member called the Redeemer that if somebody had misfortune 
and they lost their property, the Redeemer would come and he would pay the price to retire the debt so that property could be returned to its rightful owner. When the Bible uses the word redemption, it has this picture in mind of, of us being God's property and we have been given over to our sins. We no longer belong to God because of these things. It is God buying back you and I, despite our sins, to become His. And it's restoring you and I back to being His in order to fulfill His purposes. And one of the things you and I face in life, besides shame, because of our sin, is brokenness. Brokenness. Because of the sin of humanity and our personal sin, we experience brokenness. And what this is, is God taking the broken pot that once was his, and he puts it back together in a, in a beautiful way and restores it to its purposes. So that's something that is ours. Because of Christ, we have redemption through his blood. Again, it's another powerful picture of the salvation you and I can experience. Freedom from shame and, and having our brokenness put back together. And so there's another word that's a very big word that is used to describe our salvation. It was sort of the core teaching of the Protestant Reformation, and that is the idea of justification. Justification. Being justified. Because he's gone to the cross, you and I are justified. We have justification. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you look in the Bible, the first place this word justification appears is actually in the book of Deuteronomy. It's chapter 25, verse 1. And in that passage, Moses is writing, and he tells the people of Israel that he's going to set up judges to preside over court cases. And he says what these judges will do is they will acquit the innocent and condemn the guilty. And the, the word for acquitting is the word justified. It means let them go, declare them innocent. When we think of justice, we have a picture of it that's very popular in our culture, in Western culture. It's the picture of a woman who has a blindfold on, and what's she holding in her, in her hand? She's holding scale. And, and the idea is this person with a blindfold on is literally weighing the evidence, weighing the evidence to punish versus the evidence to acquit and to let go, to punish. And, and, and we, that is the uh, picture we have of, of what justice is. Justification is the, the idea of, of this going on. And, and, and the question we really get is asking this. Justification is why God should let you and I off the hook. Why would God do that? Why would God let you and I off the hook? Now, that's a question we don't really deal with a lot because, frankly, it's a very tough, tough topic. And our culture doesn't like the idea of us as human beings standing before God and facing judgment and giving account for our life. It, it, it gets mocked. It gets ridiculed. But, but when you think about it, and I think this is the cause of a lot of it, there is a haunting logic to the fact that a human being would stand before Almighty God who created them, who loves them, who had a purpose for them, and give an account 
for what they've done with their life. To give an account for our actions, to give an account for our deeds, to give an account even more so for the intentions behind our actions. And that's a very scary thought. The idea that even my secrets, everything about me, is going to be laid bare before Almighty God, and I will have to explain myself to Him. That's a very challenging and uncomfortable reality that, 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 that exists, and there is a haunting logic to it that often we don't want to face. Justification is, is the idea that you and I can stand before God there and, and really be, be up for that moment, being justified. And, the, the, uh, and if you develop this thought throughout the Bible, it, it, there's, there's the book of Romans particularly, Paul develops this idea of justification. Justification. Now, when you and I think of justification, one of the things we think of is what are our reasons behind letting somebody off the hook? Say that you're a basketball coach. Anybody here a basketball fan at all, basketball? Let's say that you're a basketball coach, and it's the fourth quarter of a big basketball game, and your point guard in this big close game makes a turnover. In the next possession down, their team scores a basket on him. And then the next time you get the ball, he goes down, and he takes a bad shot and shoots up an air ball. Now, if somebody looked at the coach and said, what is your justification for not taking that guy out of the game? And you found out the point guard had scored 40 points and hadn't missed a shot the whole game. You would go, well, I'm justified in keeping him in because he's played so well. What he has done the first three quarters of this game I'm going to keep let him play through a few mistakes in the fourth quarter. It justifies. In other words, what's going on here outweighs the mistakes here. It's justification. And when we follow this word in the Bible, it's really interesting in the book of Romans, Paul talks about human sin. He talks about human depravity. He talks about how every human's got to give an account to God. And in, in, in Romans chapter 3, he asks this question, how is God justified in forgiving people. What's his justification? What's, what is, when we think of the whole sin of humanity, or even any individual on this scale, and then over here, what is in this scale? What is on this bowl that is outweighing this? And he says what it is is that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That what he did on the cross is heavier it's weightier, it's more significant than all of this combined. And for that reason, someone who receives Jesus as Lord and Savior are justified. And the word justified means literally this, just as if I'd never done it. Justified, just as if I'd never done it. You and I can stand before God with the confidence that we, could, we can have with him as though we had never sinned, just as if I'd never done it. Justified. Justified. And there's a powerful 
sermon that Paul the Apostle preaches in Acts chapter 13. And I want you to turn there, if you would, in your Bible. Acts chapter 13. See that? Those in your camera just saw that. I just, with one hand, threw the Bible up, caught it. Listen, you don't get this everywhere. There's a lot of churches you could have gone to this morning. You wouldn't have seen that. Acts 13, verse 32. And let me tell you what's going on here. This is, a, this is a very key, kind of a big moment in the history of Christianity. In this moment, Paul, the, this is kind of where Christianity began to really separate from Judaism as a religion. And what Paul is, is doing, he's going to a, a Gentile city called Piston Antioch. It's a very big city back in the ancient times. And as he would, he would often do when he would start a church in a city, he would go to a synagogue. And he went there, and this synagogue had a larger population of Gentile converts than most, even though it was predominantly Jewish. So he goes there, and Paul had been a student of a very famous rabbi called Gamal, and when somebody found that out, they were like, oh my goodness, we've got to hear you. So Paul would get up and, and have an instant platform, and he's, he's speaking. They asked him to speak. And so in his, in his message, Paul goes through, and he goes through the history of Israel. He starts with how they became a people through Abraham, how they were in uh, slavery uh, under Egypt, and how they were ex that, that exodus happened, and they got out of slavery. They wandered in the wilderness. Then by jo under Joshua's leadership, they went in, and they conquered, and they got their own territory. And then after that, they were in... Uh, uh, you know, for a period of suspension. They were ruled by judges for many years, and it was, it was an interesting time. And then after that, God began to develop a monarchy, develop a, a, a kingdom. And they had a king named Saul, and he was kind of good, then he went bad. And then there was a king named David. And in the history of Israel, and the people of Israel, this was sort of their ideal time. And part of the promises of the Messiah is that God would raise up a ruler who would kind of restore the greatness and the pride the people of Israel had uh, when King David was their king. And so he kind of talks about this, and he goes through this history. And then he begins to talk about Jesus. And he tells the story of Jesus. And he tells them that Jesus is this Messiah that had been promised. And he talks about how the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem crucified the promised Messiah, Yet God raised him from the dead. And he's very emphatic that this is sort of the proof that Jesus was who he said he was. You know, if we had an election going on, and there were a wide range of candidates that you could choose from, wide range. And let's say somebody's really over here, and there's some really over here. Maybe there's a guy that has a really strong movement but not a majority, and he's kind of controversial, but he, you know, he, he's got a group. And let's say this candidate dies. He's killed. And then three days later, he comes back to life. He's raised from the dead. Now, I'll tell you this. I don't know who I was voting for before that, if a guy literally 
died. A candidate died and then came, was resurrected three days later. He's at least got my vote. Just telling the truth. I, I, would, I don't care what they are. I would just think that, that guy, whatever he was concerned about, it's a concern. God raised him from the dead. He's the guy that's supposed to be in office, right? That would be the way I'd interpret it. And this is how they were sharing about Christ. They were preaching the resurrection. And then he gets to verse 32 in this message. And, and he says this, We tell you the good news. Well, God promised our ancestors... He has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Jesus. Basically, he says this is what was in the Old Testament over and over again. You know, Micah chapter 5, verse 1 through 4 talks about how the shepherd of Israel will be struck, but then he will rise up as a great shepherd over all the sheep, and his greatness will reach the ends of the earth. There are, there are many, many, many passages in the Old Testament Let's speak about what happened uh, through Christ is coming to the, and how it came to pass. So he goes through here, and in verse 33, he says, He fulfilled it. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Verse 34, God raised him from the dead, that he will never be subject to decay, as God has said. I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one suffer decay. Now, when David had served the purposes of God in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors, and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not decay. Now, I want you to look at verse 38 and 39. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification that was not able to be obtained under the law of Moses. So here's what Paul does. He preaches about the resurrection, and then he says, I want you to know this. What was promised in the Old Testament over and over again where God promised he would forgive our sins. God promised he would wipe out our sins. God said things like he would remove them as far as the east is from the west. God said your sins would be like the morning fog when the sun rises. It just goes away. What he promised has happened through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then he says that because of it, you are able to receive justification. And this is how he defines it. Through him, everyone who believes is released, set free from every sin. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. This is what it means to be justified. Through him. Through him. To be set free from every sin. When we say through him, we're, we're talking about this, this idea that is, uh, was in the Protestant Reformation. The idea that salvation comes through Christ alone. Only through him. Through him. That he does the work. Christianity believes this. That if you are a Christian, you understand something. That your salvation is totally completely dependent 
on what Jesus did on the cross. That moment, what he did, you put your whole trust, your whole security in what he accomplished at that moment. He did not accomplish 99.9%. He accomplished 100% through him, through him, through him, through him. The great theologian John Stott said the essence of sin is man putting himself in the place of God. The essence of salvation is God putting himself in the place of man. Man asserts himself against God and places himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where man deserves to be. That is the essence of salvation. Through him, God taking our place, God being our substitute, and that substitute being so much heavier and so much weightier than all our sins combined. It tips justice in an extraordinary way to, this, to God's verdict of acquittal, of innocence, of no condemnation toward every one of us. No penalty, no retribution. And what a powerful description he uses there, set free from every sin. Let me ask you this question personally. Do you believe you've been set free from every sin you've committed? Do you believe there is no penalty for the sins you've committed? That God's not going to bring retribution to you in one way or another for the sins you've committed? Are you really free? Do you believe that? You see, if we don't have, while atonement really hits the area of shame and redemption hits the area of brokenness, there's something else that really uh, needs to be hit in our lives, needs to be dealt with, and that's this sense of condemnation. Condemnation. How many of us here are struggling with condemnation? Let me tell you what condemnation is. Condemnation is the fear you're not doing good in a class and you're going to fail. You're not going to pass the test. It's trying to take that test and knowing, oh my goodness, I'm not ready. Condemnation is when you're doing a job and you're trying to work somewhere and you feel the displeasure of your boss. Just not satisfied with your work, not satisfied with what you're doing. Maybe you're a, a, you we're playing on a sports team and it's feeling like you're on the bad side of your coach. And he's not, he is thinking of you disfavorably. That's condemnation. Something bad is coming to me. There's retribution. And to take those sort of emotions and those sort of feelings as a Christian before God is very debilitating. This is why in the book of Romans, man, Paul spent seven, eight chapters really describing it, and he kind of reaches this conclusion in chapter 8. He wants to lead you to a point, and he says this in chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation. No condemnation. You may be having that feeling, but there is no condemnation. 
No condemnation. None. And then he goes on in that chapter 8, and you can read it in verse 33. He asks this question. Who is there who condemns? Who is the one who's condemning? What is condemning you? He said, God is the one who has justified. God is the one who has put so much on this side of the scale to tip it toward your acquittal. Who is on this side? What is on this side to tip it the other way? There is no condemnation. The Bible says, blessed are those whose sins are forgiven, whose sin the Lord does not take into account. The Bible says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have, we have peace with God. Over and over again, the Bible communicates this point. And the reason we don't feel it is because in our minds, what is on this scale matters a lot more than what's on this scale. And here's what Paul, and here's what the New Testament, and here's what we're trying to do, is get us to believe in the weight of this bowl, not the weight of this bowl. That the scale has been tipped by the death of Jesus so far this way. The Bible literally says in John, you and I can be confident in the day of judgment. When we talked about that day you and I are all going to have, where we stand before God and he opens up our life. The Bible says you can be confident because your sins have been wiped out. You can be confident because your trespasses have been removed. Just like the morning fog right now at noon is gone, your sins are gone. And you can be confident. And what I find out is being an empowered Christian is to get free from condemnation, to get free of it, to get free of this nagging fear that God's going to retaliate because of something you've done, to get free of it, to believe you've been set free from every sin, that you've been justified, that you literally stand before God today just as if you'd never done it. You're free. This is what it means to be justified. For God to have wiped away your sins. The penalty for our sins been paid. The retribution is over. Who is there who can condemn? Romans 8.33 says no one. God has done the justifying. God has weighted down this side of the scale with the blood of his son. And there is nothing weightier, nothing that matters to him, nothing else that will move him in regard to you. I just want to encourage you, live in the freedom of that. Live in the power of that. Be free. Be free. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the power of the cross to remove our stains, to remove our brokenness, and to remove our, our condemnation, to remove this 
fear of retribution, this sense that I'm going to be punished and I'm going to get it from, from God. And Lord, I pray that if, if those nagging questions and those nagging fears are hurting people, are wrestling, or people are wrestling with them, I pray that the Word of God would clarify the truth. I pray we would have so much more regard for what is in the acquittal scale, the blood of your son, the sacrifice of Jesus, than our sins that are in the condemnation scale. I pray we'd see how much greater and how much bigger his sacrifice was than all our sin and live free and enjoy you and, and live victorious because of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.